and welcome to episode two of the Living Lands podcast. I appreciate all the kind words and everyone who reached out after listening to our first episode. In a couple weeks, we will be releasing our second interview with Peter Levi, a freshwater hydrologist from Northland University. We will also be dropping YouTube content to dive deeper into the podcast topics and making them accessible to all of our audience. In this second part of the conversation with Justin Thomas, we expand on sea values and how anyone can use them to look at the world a little differently. I hope you enjoy. So prairies are something that we've talked about a lot today, and obviously you and I have talked about prairies a lot um, just in our previous conversations, but just for the audience that we have talking a little bit about prairies and why prairies and um, what do prairies look like? What is their significance? Uh, I know that's a lot, but I really think it's important to paint the picture of like, what do prairies provide that maybe um, our yards or our current grasslands and fields are not um, providing? And then, you know, what should they be? What should they look like in the future and, and why? Well, prairies are, you know, of course, mostly a, a high, basically, I think we define prairies more the lack of trees than anything else. We think of prairies as being grasslands, but they're usually, you know, I, I do a lot of work for Missouri Prairie Foundation, Missouri Department of Conservation, um, uh, Johnson County Parks as prairie remnants. We collect a lot of data on them. And, and when you look at data, like really high quality prairies, they're actually a good 50, 60% forbs by biomass. So they look grassy, but there's a lot of forby herbaceous things in there that aren't necessarily grass. But they're formed because it's too dry, or it was historically too dry for trees to establish, and grasses are favored. People think fire is the, the driving factor in that dynamic. It is a factor. I don't know that it's a driving factor. But the prairies are a climatic phenomenon. And when grasses start establishing in landscapes over long periods of time, grasses grow roots down, down in the soil, and then those roots periodically die and regrow and die and regrow and they build soils. So prairies, like I said earlier, is really a soil phenomenon. Prairie builds soils and they build a lot of carbon in soils. They're great. We're learning more and more that they're as good a carbon sink as forests, um, but they build soil and they build soil microbia. And when you start damaging prairies, the microbia starts eating away the soil. And so when a prairie starts becoming a forest or a, a grassland starts becoming a, a woodland or a forest, that really is a dynamic of the soil being eaten away by microbia because the dynamics that created grasslands have changed. Hi, puppy. I got a puppy dog. Daddy. <laughs> All good. I know how that feeling too well. But, uh, but when, we, when we do restoration, the – the uh, it's a different phenomenon because we don't have that preordained soil in those landscapes. So we're, you know, what you end up with with like restorations, you end up with a lot of grass um, dominance in the in, in systems. Or if you try to, you know, a, a lot of restorationists will will try to put more forb seed to counteract the grass seed. You end up with really forb heavy systems. Striking that balance is is really hard. Um, but Ultimately, the the richness and the complexity that prairies are capable of achieving is is phenomenal. Uh, we've we've done prairies, there's prairie native intact prairies that we've done, where a quarter meter, so like the size of a cushion on a seat, half a meter by half a meter square, um, the the record and it's a world record literally is uh, 46 species of native vascular plants in in that height of an area wow. now those 46 species are everywhere the whole site may have only 100 species but they're so mixed and they're so there's a just a little side there's a there's a guy in illinois jack white who does prairie stuff he's a he's an old natural he started helped start the natural history program in illinois so he's an older gentleman now but he's currently doing these prairie cross sections and long sections where he takes a takes a prairie plot and he'll cut away a centimeter of stems and take a photograph, then cut another centimeter, you know, a meter wide, and take another photograph. And what he's finding is he slowly like removes layers in, in a prairie plot is how big blue stem and little blue stem will grow like this, 
together and leave this sort of gothic arch in the middle. And that gothic arch will be filled with a stiff goldenrod leaf. And and then at the at the stiff goldenrod leaf and the big blue stem, the little corner, another smaller gothic arch will have a violet in it. That there is a structural complexity there. In a prairie remnant or in an old field, even you make that cross section, it's all chaotic and, and there's no real that that depth and that structure. The attunement to place at that scale to which living systems can achieve is different than a system that has had time to sort and has all the pieces to fill those those holes. So so that's you know, in, in reality, I think what, one of the things coming out of Jack's work doing this is that our goal probably as restorationists is to start looking at ways we we architecturally piece prairies back together. It's always up up until this point, it's just how do we get a bunch of prairie plants to grow together? The next phase is okay, how do we get those pieces to reassemble in their natural state to literally niche maximize those landscapes to get more pollinators to get more uh, more functional dynamics on landscape so is there like a tipping point like if you know let's say i have five acre plot and i want to turn it into the best prairie ever so we do all this stuff we basically burn it off cut everything down get rid of all the invasive species we start over let's say we do that but if we have a really good restoration plan for a hundred years and in a hundred years you know all those native seeds took hold and it's it's nice and native and the sea values off the charts um you know is that a prairie after a hundred years or is it like what is there a tipping point or does it need to be a specific size or does it need to have a specific dynamic that without it, it is no longer a prairie? Uh, I'm just very curious about that because at some point there has to be a line drawn, right? Yeah. Uh, for me, I think the, it kind of comes down to, to what we, how we ultimately define nature or natural systems is, is, is usually a place that functions on its own. Yeah, so so you talk about like doing a restoration and there's lots of energy input and it's basically just like building scaffolding and braces and training wheels and on on a living landscape the goal to make that a natural functioning system is to eventually remove all the braces and all the scaffolding and all the training wheels and for that system to roll on functional on its own i think that is possible i think that takes a long time it's 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 I often joke it's it's the difference between a rich the difference between a rich gruyere moldy mottled stinky fine cheese and craft singles is two things it's the quality and craftsmanship put into it and the time scale to which it's allowed to to manifest i mean you could you could put uh you could put craft singles in a humidor for ten years, and it's not going to get much better. Um, Have you tried it? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's, <laughs> maybe try to find out. There's got to be a brick of government cheese somewhere. That's there's there's a brick of McDonald's <laughs> cheese somewhere that's right. still going. Yeah, I'm sure somewhere for sure. <laughs> but it, it, and I think in living systems, we we're just now at the point in in, in restoration and stuff. It's always been. Um, the question has always been, how do we reassemble these things? And as we start to get better at that, we start to re- realize the question isn't no, this isn't so much how do we put these things together. It's it's how do we put these things together and get them to interact. I I often put you know restorations often remind me of like a an eighth grade school dance. You know you've you've got boys and girls together. But nobody knows what's going on. They're standing around here and over there. You, you don't have a dance. You're calling it a dance. Most people are dancing. It's just a bunch of awkward or entities put together. Um, nature is a is a rave in, in downtown New York City at two in the morning. I mean, that's what a living system is. And so, how do we get one to the other? Is a learning process. I, I don't know that we we have that answer. I think I think we're now just sort of becoming aware of of having to ask that question 
So is that kind of the next phase then of like the research? I mean, it's just kind of yeah. figuring out like what is there a ratio of grass to forbs to trees to shrubs uh, and, and then just kind of playing on to that until we figure it out in the long term. Yeah, and, and for sure. And I, and I think the I think I think the first step towards really getting into to the success of that to those latter stages and the next stages of, of 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 restoration whether it's woods or prairies or whatever is is understanding that this is our journey that this is that we as people have to change that the things that we care about have to modify as we modify the system we start okay you know put it this way with the first prairie restorations were like crp sort of things like okay here's a bunch of seeds together we threw them there now it's a prairie then you realize oh well that's not quite right what about this and you start doing this and well that's not quite as as you keep doing things as this, as this becomes important as you become engaged and start doing these things it's changing you as well so all of a sudden you're becoming aware that that life is a very complex a very magical thing that depends upon order it depends on stability it depends on making mistakes and learning from them i don't think we're quite conscious of our engagement in our process but i think if we become reflective with that and it's one thing one thing i like about c values is it gives us a reflective lens we start becoming reflective of our relationship and how we need to be different and how we need to perceive systems we start realizing that our perception starts manifesting as that landscape manifests as well. Right. Um, you, you know, the, the person that built the person in the attitudes that built Prairie Restorations 10 years ago is a very different person and a very different perspective than people that will be building Prairie Restorations 20 years from now. Sure. And the difference, the difference there is going to be a degree of compassion a degree of understanding, a degree of involvement, because there is no recipe. Um, and there's probably no, I mean, I think it's probably part of the journey is, is realizing, okay, what are the expectations and how, to what degree can we actually do these things? Um, I get emails quite a bit for people asking, um, We've got this prairie restoration, it's 20, 30 years old, but it still has a, a C value of 3.0, an average C value of 3.0, <clears throat> whereas a native prairie, intact, high quality prairie, will have an average C value of like four and a half. That's a big difference between three and four and a half. But they realize that the difference is that when you look at the understory, when you pull grasses back and look down at the, in the, on the ground at the, at the roots, there's still lots of weedy junk under there, whereas a high quality prairie you, you look at the understory look under the, the grasses and forbs and there's quality all the way to the ground um, but nobody's collecting seeds of the little tiny things that fill the understories of prairie so a lot of the emails and stuff i get now are, are sort of that next that, that new awareness that next stage of like oh we didn't go deep enough into the prairie how do we how do we move along i think being aware of that of that process and saying to ourselves okay what what is what's the question we're going to ask 50 years from now let's ask it now let's 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 cut to the chase and speed this process up um, those questions are going to be questions of of how do we how do we get things to function and, and relate probably a lot of soil microbial dynamics that we we haven't really considered because even on the best prairie restorations when they go in and do like bee surveys they're still very generalist bees. You go to a prairie remnant, even like right next door, and there are bees. First of all, there's three times as many species, and the two thirds that are greater on the prairie remnant are species that, that live their lives in a five square meter and they never leave it. How do you get that dynamic on a restoration? So you said something there that I wanna make sure um people here and you said something uh that really struck me as well a uh, prairie a high quality prairie average sea value is 4.5 that seems pretty low right i mean in the grand scheme of things on a zero to ten scale right yeah no that's a good point and it's a it's a question people 
often have are they well, why isn't the average c value in the sevens or the eights and the the short answer to that is that a that a functional living system needs zeros ones and twos and it needs sevens eights nines and tens and when you average those like if you go into a prairie an intact old old growth prairie system it's about 20 percent big blue stem or little blue stem and that's the backbone of the of the of the the matrix of, of the prairie that creates the general structure to which other things occur. And then there's long-lived perennials that take up another 30, 40% long-lived forbs and perennials. Um, that system to be functional, to be, to be, to work over long periods of time needs that depth of a toolbox at zero to 10. It needs a little bit of all of it, but it needs a little bit of higher in the middle because things do happen. There are, you know, tip-up mounds, or a, a bison will wallow out a spot, and well, you, there's an ecological answer to those. So you, it's not that you don't need any low C values because you do need some. It's the proportion to which you need, and ultimately that proportion is what drives that C value. So the the highest C value I've ever seen, the highest average C value of an intact living system that I've ever seen. It was a legitimate sort of number. It's about six. And when you start getting high C values in the six range, you start asking, okay, is, is there are there species on this list whose C values, whose individual C values may be too high? Do we need to go back to the list and and and, and change some numbers? Uh, like 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 uh, calcareous fins, fin communities, these CB wet uh, groundwater wet systems in the Ozark, they'll have high C values, but a lot, a lot of those plants are because we've inflated the numbers a little bit. Um, but that number, four and a half, is, is pretty much the litmus test for high quality functional system. Three and a half, this is written in the most of the literature, three and a half, average C value, three and a half or higher is, is a site that has restoration potential. If you get below an average C value of three, you're talking about putting in a lot of energy and a lot of effort to to fix um, an old beat up fescue field, you know, with some weedy natives and things move that are in it. It'll have an average C value of two. So these are very subtle changes, um, but yeah, good systems average out about four, four and a half. Maybe a little higher so I want to touch on one thing you just said before I ask a question that's totally going to take us on a uh, something else. But you talk about changing the C values, like who gets that jurisdiction, and and if if it's that simple to just go back and say, all right, well maybe we rated this one t too high ten years ago, let's change it up. It's like then, you know, doesn't that raise somewhat of a question of like, well, how legitimate are these values? Um, and, you know, how hard is it or how simple is it to actually change these values? And then furthermore, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, I, I alluded to this a while ago that there, there are numbers and, and that's misleading because this is not a numerical metric. So we're using numbers as, as more or less categorical data. Like statisticians hate the C value system because we are actually we're using numbers in a in the way that you would use shades of color. Um, it's not really a numerical value, um, but it makes sense. What, whatever it is, it work. You know, we always tell statisticians to try to work on it, and they'll agree. They usually agree over time. Is, is that it should not really work mathematically, but it does. Um, so so there. There are qualitative measure, and it is subjectively assigned. What happens is a group of botanists say, "Tall goldenrod, Saldago altissima." What do you guys think? On a it, the the numbers used to be sort of a, a way of thinking about what to assign them is the chances out of ten that you'd find it in an intact, high quality system. So tall goldenrod, you'd look at it and you'd say, "Well, you know, it's in quality systems, but it's not common to." one or two so a group of botanists pitch numbers try to defend their numbers and then eventually derive at a at a consensus of, of what that number should be for each species um 
and then the keeper the keepers of the list me doug ladd a couple other folks we're constantly making notes and, and curating notes of like okay that's a little high that's a little low we're, we're still trying to zero in on these numbers to make them a little more more functional but then there are some species that are very it's difficult because some species are are don't quite fit the the goal or fit fit the the concept like uh there's these false foxglove, the genus Agalinus, they're these hemiparasitic uh, annual often um, forbs that occur in really high quality woodlands, but they only really express from the seed bank if you do something really dramatic and shocking to them. Like if you burn, burn too much or sort of do some thinning a little much, things that are sort of antithetical to the actual system, they will express um however in beat up woods they won't exist and they won't persist so they're these sort of things that react to damage but aren't an indicator of a damaged system those are hard to give c values to because they're kind of they're kind of bimodal but so yeah then then once we accumulate you know in all honesty you know 37 states now have the c value system and several regions have the c value system of those, most of them, and maybe, you know, maybe a third of them have ever been updated. Uh, Missouri, again, the, the first list was 93 for Missouri. Uh, it was updated for the first time in 2015. But we're already talking about redoing it, you know, in the next couple of years. So there's a little quicker turnaround. Kansas has numbers. I think Kansas got numbers for the first time four or five years ago. Arkansas is just about to publish their numbers. Um, but usually committees determine individually what those numbers should be um and it's, and it's all based on experience and that's just the thing that's why it's called an ecological checklist and has those c values in it because you got to deal with the taxonomic names that may not come from field-based knowledge primarily but the numbers have to come from an experiential relationship with a landscape there's been studies in illinois where they where they defend it statistically where they say okay if there's these great papers by Matthews in, uh, in Illinois and Greg Spireas at uh, Champaign Urbana does cool research where they take like, okay, if, if this, they take real data, real quadrat plot data across landscapes. And they say, if something has a seven, then there should be things, there should be sixes and eights that occur with a seven statistically. You shouldn't have a, a seven and an eight in a plot that also has a bunch of zeros and ones. And so they test that statistically to determine how predictable those numbers are. And they're very, very solid hmm. statistically from, from testing it from that standpoint, um, which, is, which is wonderful. So how did Missouri's um, floristic quality assessment become such a, a standard and high quality um, setup? Because I've talked to people in Iowa um, and people seem to look at the Missouri assessment that you worked on as kind of like a golden example of what every state should have, but doesn't have, or will hopefully have in the future. Not that ours is perfect, but something to strive towards because we actually do have a pretty strong basis for going outside in Missouri and, and looking at the sea values and seeing what we have. Conversely, I go over the border five minutes away and I'm in Kansas, and the floristic quality assessment of Kansas is on a completely different level. Not that it's bad, but it doesn't meet maybe necessarily the standard that we have for the Missouri one. Yeah, there's. I think there's two things there. One is is Missouri, whether it's Missouri Botanical Gardens influence or just the right people, at the right time in the night. You know, when when environmental movements express themselves in the formation of new state parks and new opportunities through the Missouri Department of Conservation and things like that in the 70s and 80s. Um, natural history programs, natural heritage programs were not a thing until the 70s and 80s. Missouri and Illinois happened to just be two states that had a lot of political muscle behind them. And so Missouri has always had a really strong conservation community and even, you know, it, it, usually in the form of hunting and fishing, which are, are good things. 
but also in, in a natural history sense and a, and a natural resource sense and an awareness of what ecological functions and systems are. So we've had great people, Paul Nelson, uh, Doug Ladd, uh, the Bruce Shooties, the Bruce Shooty, the Bruce Shooty, um, lots of people at, at parks, uh, Dan Dries. And Illinois had a lot of wonderful people too. Um, but Missouri has a lot of landscapes. So we, I think we just had the right political climate and 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 inertia from that to develop early notions of functional systems. Um, also, the landscape itself. So Missouri has lots of intact systems, at least the southern half of it. The Ozarks are one of the most intact landscapes in eastern North America. And so we have a lot of examples in there because we have a lot of examples we have a lot of experience and because we have a lot of experience we can better assign c values and and you know, the first step of c values is first saying what are the species so you have a, have a taxonomic platform as well whereas somewhere like iowa which you know i love iowa there's lots of wonderful places in iowa it's a beautiful state despite the fact that most of it has been completely altered i mean it's it's, it's almost a mechanized landscape at this point um, it would be hard to assign C values simply because you don't have numbers to see it. And then like Chicago area, one of the, one of the, you know, Chicago region was the birthplace of holistic quality assessment. Um, most people that work somewhere else that go to Chicago and, and look at their numbers quickly realize that their numbers are higher than anywhere else. And it's probably, and it's probably because in the Chicago region, there's nothing really left and what remnants they do have are really special. And so the numbers are kind of, you, know, you say they're artificially inflated, but they, they may or that may or may not be fair, but, but, a but like a, a C value, a mean, an average C value prairie in like the Chicago region using their numbers um, of 4.5 would probably score like 3.5 in Missouri. So I know you're going to hate this, but it, as much as there are statistical basis for a lot of this stuff and there's science to kind of support it, there is almost in a, in a way an art to knowing what, um, what should be somewhere. And it, and it comes from a experience. It comes from seeing it. It comes from going places where it should be and not seeing it and just kind of corroborating yeah. all that information and just being like, Hey, this needs to be out there. And I know it for a fact in my soul, but I have nothing that can really confirm or deny it either. Yeah. There's, there's a book called grasslands. It's a, it's a popular uh, prairie awareness sort of book. I forget the author, but in there, uh, the author refers to, to botanists as, as, as the shaman like characters that just, feel they they step out of a car onto a piece of property and they can just innately sense <laughs> by the structure and a few plants they see what that landscape is as a botanist i can i can do that i do feel that i think i think it's a human thing i think of uh, being a you know knowing plants being trained or, or self-trained and landscape allows you to start justifying that and, and seeing what those what those values what those values actually mean and what they are but there is but i think it's a very human thing and it's it's kind of the beauty and it's it's what c values are it's mean c or the fqa process mean c values for the quality assessment it really is a tool to try to just give the average person access to that shamanistic awareness of what a functional landscape is largely for me to the hope that 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 will that will touch something in their souls that make them realize that that, that this is a this is that this is a deeply human process of, of reading landscapes and engaging in landscapes healthfully i don't think we need them i mean it would be nice if we just didn't have to have c values if people just just knew that because ultimately, if we if you had to get rid of C values in the holistic quality assessment protocol, I would just tell people whatever it takes to stabilize the functional dynamics of a landscape are ultimately the good of that landscape. Um, and so, whatever it takes to create structure and function, I mean, it it is whatever it is about life. Life just tends to you know, 
life left to its own devices without damage, without alteration, over time complexifies and intensifies and becomes magical in and of itself. It is a quality of life itself. You know, we don't have to make, it's not like these are Legos and we're building systems. I think that mentality gets you nowhere. But these are living systems that must engage with themselves, and they do engage with themselves because it is the very foundation. It is the definition of, of a living system. It's but there's nothing added. inherently wrong with humans coming in and, and modifying it because, for example, like a field border in a row crop field, there's no way that that border is ever going to have a natural uh, – evolution to a nice grassland prairie if you don't plant it with something if you don't put seed there the chances of that ever colonizing to something meaningful in the long term is so low because there those plants likely aren't even in the immediate vicinity let alone miles away even or there's a chance that that's a very high chance that that's the case and so human intervention is critical yet in an unfortunate way because it shouldn't have gotten to this point, but it did. We're here and we need to, or we should at least consider what we have to do at least to yeah. try and get it to some, something else. I agree a hundred percent with that and what you're saying. The one thing that I don't necessarily like about that, and maybe this is where you were, where you were trepidations with it to begin with is, is, is how much, when you say that, and I, I do the same thing, I'm not picking on you, how much we hold back and say, well, we, we have to, you know, humans do this and we're going to be involved in that. And it, there's almost an, an apologetic sort of relationship. We really have to get over that and realize we are part of this landscape and that this is our, this is our, this is how we engage with it. This is a healthy thing. Like you're saying, putting in a border in next to a crop field that's going to help stabilize that system and, and bring in some functionality and bring in some biological diversity in that thing. That's a beautiful process. Yeah, it's not what was there 100 years ago. It's not, it's not nature in and of itself, but it is living things engaging with living things and that we are one of those things engaging with. You know, it's, it's, we got to get off of this, this notion of like, um, our engagement in nature is somehow artificial because it isn't. And, and, the, and the concept that it is artificial is, is most of the problem. So I think most of the, so you're absolutely right. And that's kind of the point I was trying to make is it's like um, a lot of people, like we talked about at the very beginning of this episode is that, you know, they see the green screen, they have no idea what's what, what plan is what, and they don't care. Some of these people, they might download the floristic quality assessment and go outside and, and, and look at the C values of these different plants. And it almost seems like really negative at first because you realize that a lot of the stuff you're seeing is zeros. They're actually invasive. This should not be here. Ones or twos. It's like, okay, we're starting somewhere, but it's, you know, I want to see nines and tens. I want to, I want to see all these rare plants and I want to see them thrive and stuff like that. But then you start to realize that, you know, it got that way for a reason. Those plants aren't here for a reason anymore. And our, you know, process of taking this zero, one, and two system and even making it a four, five, and six uh, system or just even adding fours, fives, and sixes to that system, um, although it isn't natural or they aren't getting there naturally because we are coming in, we are recognizing a mistake that we made, whether intentional or not. And we are saying we are making a conscious and intentional effort to preserve and maintain and improve the land. Um, and I think that intentionality is important because it's not going to do it naturally unless we just evacuate. And even then, it's still probably not going to with how deep we are in the whole thing. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And, and, and that's that's part of that's part of that engagement. And, and like you say, people, when they first start looking at sea values, will realize how, how uh, crappy most of the landscape they have is. Although Leopold referred to, to ecologists living in a world of wounds when you start becoming aware, you start realizing just you know, how beat up and bruised a landscape is. But Robin Wall Kemmerer, braiding sweetgrass, um, in the last couple of years, 
it's kind of flipped that flipped the script in the way that she says it may be a world of wounds but it's still the world that's feeding us that's providing us oxygen um so engaging it and engaging it in a way that you know you're going to do it wrong but knowing that you're going to do it wrong helps you learn to start doing it right so you know there's that there's that whole like nobody what do they call it the like there's a like a starting something phobia there's a term for it um you don't want to start you don't want to engage in something because you're going to do it wrong you have to you have to realize yeah you're going to do it wrong but that's how you start to do it right and so um i think i think we often don't do and don't don't launch in on things like this because we think oh it's nature and it's precious and then and we may mess something up as long as you're aware that you may mess something up you're probably ultimately going to learn and do it better the, the managers that i fear the most are the ones that think they know how to do it all oh no here's how we do it all right you go in here and you do this do that they usually end up with pretty abused landscapes i mean it literally is <clears throat> the intentionality with which you engage in something whether it's whether it's parenting children or running your business or engaging with living systems it's another one of these phenomenal dynamics of just life itself is the intentions you have and the worries that you have ultimately determine how how the product is but there's got to be action and if you're not taking action nothing's going to happen yeah i i mean if you're not going out and you know, doing anything. And this is not only apply to plants, but if you're just not doing anything, you're letting the system do the work, but it's being affected by you regardless of if you intended to or not and other people as well. And so by even going out on your daily walk and, and looking at one new plant on your daily walk every single day, you know, you'd be surprised in two weeks, you're not finding any new plants on your daily walks anymore. You've seen what's what's on that route and you need to go out of your way to find a new one or you need to look a little bit harder and oh you just found out that actually you thought these two were the same exact thing but they're they're not and it's kind of funny a little story uh i went to rwanda africa a few years ago for a study abroad trip and some uh kids on my uh, in my group they weren't environmental science majors even though it was an environmental science based um study abroad course they were just interested in it they wanted to go somewhere cool um so uh they came along and i was like the crazy bird guy like i brought the eastern africa bird book and i was looking at every single bird i could i was taking photos of all the birds and i i don't know i wanted to see as many birds as i could that was my goal i wanted to you know mark every single one down that i saw and try to walk away with 20 30 40 different bird species at the end of the trip and at first these kids were like nobody cares dude like move on just have a good time and enjoy the trip and then at the end one of them came up to me and they're like sam i can't stop trying to figure out what the different birds are like i like i can't look at a bird now and not try to know what it is and it just made me laugh because i'm like one person got the bug and once you start doing it um you can't stop because you just realize how many there are you're never gonna know them all you're never gonna know every plant or every bird you might know every animal because there's to some level not that many um but you know it's just really cool to challenge yourself to like learn uh a new one and even if it's yeah. not every day, if it's one a week, you're still never going to learn them all. Um, yeah. And uh, I do I do run into that mentality sometimes, too, where it does feel a little negative to go outside and look at the road ditch on the highway and be like, oh, my gosh, what if the road ditches were prairies? What if the boulevards in the center of the highways were, were prairies? I mean, that's a lot of area that's not being used for much of anything at all. And I, there, there are other arguments against it, and I'm not going to get into that right now. But my point is, you look at it from this lens, and you're just like, man, these systems have potential that isn't being manifested. And then you look at other uh, systems, and you actually take a second to look at it, and you find that um, this system that doesn't look very good or may, may not look very good to the untrained eye is actually a lot more complex than you 
can initially give it credit for. And it's just cool to explore those different dynamics intentionally um, yeah. and just kind of seeing what's out there. And then you can, by doing that, I mean, you can make a ton of very basic natural conclusions just off of that information alone. Totally. And that that's, that potential in places like roadsides and, and things is, is it's only going to manifest. I mean, those are public lands that somewhere the public agreed that, or somebody decided that, uh, you know, fescue would be the roadside grass that we, we would yeah. plant and then we would mow it regularly. But the degree to which that changes is literally the degree to which the public becomes more aware, or at least interest groups can, can, can drive. I mean, who doesn't want showy, wonderful, beautiful roadsides? We've talked about this before, but you know, roadsides themselves, from interstates down to gravel roads and cow pasture fields, they're like fungal mycelia that extracted. I mean, they're literally there because they were extracting resources like fungal my, mycelia growing through soil. Well, now we can reverse that product, reverse that pro that process, and start using those to start filling back in with native landscapes and sort of, you know, re-establishing where we can. And we've got, I mean, if you lined all the, if you lined every road in a landscape with, with wonderful native wildflowers and grasses, they would start filling in the landscapes in between. They're they're basically a, a, a network for doing that. Um, the only the only thing stopping us is just public awareness. I mean, weirdly enough, I, it's I'm not even trying to be too negative about it because not very far from me on the highway, there's actually like a an old sign that says wildflowers here or like native tall grass prairie planting like in the roadside ditch, but it's all reed canary grass and yeah, um right. you know, brome and all this stuff. So it's it's all invasives now, but the I think at some point um, you know, obviously we have nat national parks for a reason and, um, these native areas for a reason, but at some point there was a push for, for that sign to get put there. That sign got put there for a reason. And maybe there was some seed thrown out, uh, on the side of the road over there. And although it isn't anything now, there's no doubt in my mind that in the seed bank, in that spot, there are native plants waiting to come out and, and show themselves if the right restoration practices were put into place and i think that's not that is not the only place that's like that it's just it needs to be done the right way and the potential needs to be maximized through the correct methodology depending on the spot yeah, yeah. and you're absolutely right i see those there's some outside of st louis so the signs outside of st louis along the highways to say prairie rehab and it'll just be weeds and, and fescue and stuff it's like, well, it's like a, it's like the worst rehab <laughs> you possibly have. Take the sign down. It, do, it paints, a, it paints yeah, the wrong like, yeah, picture. Yeah. This is not helping anybody at all. Um, but it, it really becomes a you know, whole separate topic, but just to touch on it briefly is there's, we have this sort of totalitarian understanding of conservation that it's like, okay, there has to be these government agencies and they're in charge of it and they're the ones that should be doing it. And, and, that's that's not the totalitarian view that of the authorities are the ones that are in charge of fixing this. We really have to transcend that mentality and realize that okay, if you if you want if you want actual prairie rehabs and, and prairie roadside plantings and stuff like that, it's going to have to be more like um, you know adopt a highway sort of things where it's a, a, a church or a Boy Scout group says, hey, we're going to do this as a collective group because our community means something to us. You, you, you kind of need that dynamic instead of, because I think a lot of people, it's one of the bad things about, about government being conservation, conservation being government, is, is people just expect them to do it and that, that they're paying taxes so they don't have to think about it. When in fact, it's never going to work that way. Well, I'll, I'll just put this out there now. This is the first interview of the Living Land podcast. One of these days, the Living Land podcast will adopt a highway section, <laughs> and, and we'll do something like that one of these yeah, days. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So it, it's gonna t it certainly takes a village, and I don't think that this is the only 
you know, this ain't the only thing that is going to require community effort to maintain and uphold and improve. But I feel like there's a lot of people out there that do care about this kind of stuff, whether they know it or not, whether they know about it or not, whether they've encountered this information in the past. Um, but hopefully through sharing it and talking about it here, we can kind of like spark, you know, I feel like it's a success if we sparked one person to go outside and look at a C value for a plant. If, if I yeah. can get one person to listen to this, go outside in their backyard, figure out what a plant is that they don't know and look up the C value for it. Um, I would call that a success because it does not take much to spark that, that, you know, once you do it yeah. one time, you're going to do it again. I know you will. And you're just going to keep doing it. Yeah. You, you should put the link to the, uh, to the ecological checklist. I'm going to put the link to the paper and I, um, I have it downloaded. I have the floristic quality database, um, for people to go in as an Excel file. I can share that with anyone. Um, so I, I literally go onto that Excel sheet every day probably. And I just control F search a species that I found or that I'm looking for that I even thought about, um, that I didn't even see, but I was like, Oh, I wonder what red Oak is. And I'll just go and look up a red Oak or you can go and look up anything. Um, I mean, you know, it's not every single plant species out there, but it's for the most part, whatever I'm going to find outside, I'm going to find on that, on that paper. And, uh, I will put the link in the description somewhere. And if anyone wants to reach out to the podcast, I can share that Excel file. Um, you can go onto the floristic database uh, online and find it as well and download it yourself. But I'm happy to share that with anyone that would, that would want that. There's even a, <clears throat> there's even a fun game you can play by using the, the checklist and the C values is get a, get a couple friends together that know enough plants and then pull plants off the list and have people guess what the C value is. And if they're off by, it's like a, it's like, it's like a golf. You want the lowest score possible. Oh, so if it's like, if it's like a three and somebody guesses a four, well, okay. They get a point off. So you just kind of, you can go around. It's fun just to guess. I have to do it in talks and like of large groups. Cause I'll show pictures. I could, I could show up for a talk on, okay, this talk is supposed to be about, prairie restoration in the midwest and if i just went through picture after picture of plant and asked people what c values were from the audience they would have the best presentation i mean not related <laughs> to the subject at all people just love to sit and look at pictures of plants and guess what the c values are and it's a fun game to play and what i've learned from it with just general audiences even is how good people are at just that you know they relatively know what a species is even like made of this landscape of they kind of get they get really close it's very close um, a couple exceptions that are always fun is like uh uh rebecca herty black-eyed susan i'll put that one up and people people think it's like a c value like four usually yeah four or five. Like, eh, they know it's a, they know it's a native wildflower, but other yeah, than that, yeah, right. They're like, oh yeah, I plant that in my garden. That's got to be a good one. And I, it breaks their heart to find that it's like a one. So I'm doing a quail restoration <laughs> with my neighbor right now, and that's exactly what happened. I walked his property with him. We were talking about the restoration and what we were gonna do, and I introduced C values to him, and I was like, look, man, this is a really cool concept that I'm kind of using as a foundation for our restoration. Like what we're looking at right now is a low quality system. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm saying that because the C the average C value for the system we're looking at is honestly, it's a zero because there's nothing there because it's a field border that we're not planting anymore. So there's literally nothing there right now. But I was like, some of these native wildfires, you know, I show them, I'm like, these are zeros. These are ones, these are twos. And he's like, and it got to the point where he'd be like, what's this? I bet it's like at least a three. And I'd be like, nah, sorry, man, it's a one. And he's like, of course it is. And so, so I put together the seed mix for him, um, for what the, for the restoration project. And I put the C values for every seed species. And, uh, that was one of my, that was like part of my pitch. I was like, look, man, we're taking this zero to one system and everything we're planting here is like a four or above. Uh, and I know that there is some critique to that. And obviously there's a whole nother discussion to be had about the ethics of just shooting for high C values and um, all of that stuff. But at least, you know, we're adding 50 different 
spe- species seed species to the seed bank here, and at least 45 of the 50 are four above. And so if we get even five of them to germinate and um, and establish here, then we basically doubled the mean C value for your planting by just that alone. And although it's a little smudge in the grand scheme of things, it's it's your property, although 50 acres is still a grain of sand and the beach that is what we're working with, it's still you know, improving the quality of that system. And then hopefully in the long term, those will spread seed and maybe that seed will go into the ditch nearby and it'll, you know, it's certainly wishful thinking to some level, but at the same time, I like to think at least um, it's better than nothing. Yeah. And and amplified over, over, you know, the more and more people that do that because it is fun and it is, you know, for somebody that has a bunch of zeros and ones to get excited about five, sixes and sevens on their property. That is going to enrich their lives in ways that's going to manifest in their family and in their work life. And they're just going to feel better and they're going to see, then they're going to see the flowers and they're going to feel even better. And then, you know, the, these, these sort of things that feel good and that are functional in that way will, I think ultimately spread. It's a very uplifting. I mean, my favorite part is when people think that a plant is bad, though, and they're like, yeah. oh, man, I hate this. I literally hate right. this. It needs yeah. to go. Yeah. And then they realize yeah. that the C value is, like, kind of high for that plant. And they're like, wait a yeah. second, what? Like, I, I yeah. was talking to my neighbor about poison ivy. And I'm like, poison ivy sucks. We all hate poison ivy, right? Well, it's a native, and it's like a C value of three or four or something like that. It's, I mean, it's not high. It's not crazy. But, right. by the way, poison ivy is yeah. – is supposed to be here to some level so killing it off all the time yeah might be the best plant you have on your property it very well could be i i I mean in my field in my backyard right now i've i'm probably growing like a commercial level of poison ivy if i could figure out a way to make a profit off of growing poison ivy i mean i yeah i'd make some serious dough but at the same time i mean you know quail actually use poison ivy and they'll eat the poison ivy berries and they'll hide under the poison ivy thickets because other like coyotes aren't going to go diving into poison ivy after a quail necessarily so i mean even some of those species that we think are terrible um grape wild grape even is a fun one because that's a native that's a native has it has ecological potential and provides food for um for shoot you can even harvest your own grapes from wild grape if you want to but the point is you know even species a lot of people think are weeds and you know they would get rid of in any normal scenario once you start to take the c-value approach and evaluate it from that lens you'll be surprised what you'll find yeah that that touches on one of my favorite sort of phenomena that comes out of c-values is that a lot of low c-value plants are tangly thorny um rash inducing allergy inducing ragweeds great example like there's there's a disproportionate amount of weedy low c value things there is a function in the sense that there's 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 a functional element of nature that says this area is off limits this area is going to be covered with vines and thorns and nasty poison ivy and ragweed because it's under construction, leave it alone. They're early successional. And over time, most of those things fade. Poison ivy's a kind of a booger. But yeah. <laughs> you know, blackberries fade over time. Uh, ragweed fades over time as the yeah, so you know, it's not but they're always there, right? Like we said a while ago, the average sea value is usually right there in the middle because they're always present. It's the it's the proportion of which they're present that we that we that restoration ultimately shifts. Right. And I mean, at the end of the day, this, this, uh, database of plants is two, almost 3000 plants long and, uh, you know, over 2000 of them are the natives and less than a thousand of them are the non-natives. So in the grand scheme of things, the biodiversity, uh, and available biodiversity is immense. And we really are sitting at a point where like we can, do something meaningful and we can restore these native species we just have to know what we're looking at first right yeah 
and there's there's no step too small you know put a put some put some uh put some thistles in your garden and you know watch the birds go nuts you know to all the way up to volunteer for a local conservation area and help get rid of some invasive species and there's there's no no end no, nothing no, no too small an act no too great an act so we're coming to uh an end here for the first episode but before you know we cut it off um until the next time i kind of wanted to you know throw it back to you um do you have any parting words for the audience uh you know what what would be your one takeaway uh, from this conversation that you hope people hear or or take um to the next to the next steps uh i mean what is the most important thing somebody could take away from this conversation and impart uh in their life yeah one thing i always try to to drive home the main message and, and try to have as a the sort of background hum of most of the things i talk about in nature is you know i've been asked um what's what's the most what's the most dire thing that we can do what's the most important thing we can do to to help nature to move conservation forward um, and of course people start thinking invasive species and habitat protection yada 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 and those are all great answers but but to me the big thing is is just the understanding that nature is not a separate thing nature is not real there's no such thing nature does not exist there is there's just what is, and we are part of this system. And that may not, I mean, we almost have the safety of like, well, we're not, you know, we, we literally, whether we accept it or not, culturally function in a way that we are separate from it, probably as a way to sort of ignore the bad things we do. And so I think breaking that wall, the reason people don't want to break the wall, the resistance to realizing that there is no such thing as nature is because all of a sudden you're, you're swimming in it it's everywhere it's everything it's your cell phone it's your car it's it's there is no separation between you and nature so break those walls down it's hard to do because the mind and the psychology and the sociology of your place in the world very much a lot of your identity depends on your separateness from the rest of existence and so you know it, it sounds heavy but it's not that heavy um Start realizing that you're not. And once you realize you're not, you realize you are engaged in this, in, you know, your nervous system, when you hear birds or see wildflowers, that is your nervous system interacting with the nervous systems of other, other living systems. Embrace that and have good intentions and then act on your good intentions and everything else will take care of itself. And there's nothing wrong with using iNaturalist or PlantNet and those apps that you can literally just take an image and reverse image search to figure out what it is. Because at some point, not everybody yep. is classically trained in, in botany. And um, honestly, I they're probably them. more accurate. <laughs> they're more I, accurate. I, I hate them for how good they are. I, but I'm blown away and I'm, and I'm so enthusiastic about their potential to bring something that would otherwise be unapproachable into people's lives um it's great i see my my grandma for crying out loud takes pictures of things and gets correct ids on groups of plants that i spent my life trying to master through books and and field work so it's beautiful in that sense so yeah use those like like sam you said it a while ago just going for a walk it's good to go for a walk go for a walk every now and then take your phone take some pictures of plants start learning a few all of a sudden you realize you, if you really want to see the cool stuff, you got to go somewhere else. And all of a sudden you find yourself in nature preserves and you're like, oh, I want to bring this closer to home. That's, that's how it starts happening. Yeah. And it's, you know, if you like plants and you're interested in this kind of thing and you don't have those apps, that should be the first thing you do after this, after listening to this podcast, because once you start doing it, you're never going to not do it. And eventually you won't need it anymore because you'll know them all. But it's going to take some time and saves you a lot of effort. I've looked at a lot of those historical uh, books on different wildflowers and uh, the illustrations are grainy and they're hard to discern from seven different other types of similar species. Yeah. And I don't know how y'all did it back in the day without <laughs> this information. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, that's why only the most passionate of people ever actually became botanists because you had to just really want it. And 
and then maybe that's the part that annoys botanists like me is that you don't have to want it as much as you can get just as far. That's just a personal hangup. It shouldn't be a real, shouldn't be a real thing. Your job's but, getting automated though. You're, yeah, yeah, you're... Sure, it's, it's totally. <laughs> we did a job one time where we we they uh, we put in we we collected data in quadrats that they were going to fly over with a drone and try to get the data that we saw in in species richness to be able to just be able to take a picture because they just go over and take pictures and get the same information. So it's almost like training something to do your job for you. And it turns out it's, it's it's more complicated than that. It doesn't actually work. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least at the end of the day, um, we're, we're here now. We have encyclopedias in our pockets and yeah. uh, we can use that to do something cool. I mean, 50 years ago, we were, I mean, we, I say we, but y'all and the community of botany were looking at things completely different than what we're looking at now and looking at it from a different lens and you guys are trying to solve different problems and now yeah. today the problems that we're trying to solve are a lot different um because of the information that we have at access to i yeah. feel like just knowing the problems that we have and and being able to access the information that we have opens up uh, so many doors for exploration and research and um, even citizen uh, science. Yeah. So, yeah, we get no excuses anymore. We've got, yeah, the, right. we've got the technology. We should be able to, should be able to do anything. I want to give a huge shout out to Justin Thomas for joining me on our first episode of the living lands podcast. If you have any questions or comments that would like to reach out, you can find our social media handles in the description of the video, as well as our email address. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to having you listen in on the next one.